Hey everyone, and welcome back to Country Music Made Me. Thank you so much for joining us once again. If you haven't already, please be sure to check out our website, countrymusicmademe.com. There you can listen to all of our episodes and also sign up for our newsletter to receive exclusive content and also stay up to date on all of our upcoming guests. Just head over to countrymusicmademe.com and hit that subscribe button. You can also find us on any streaming platform. So if streaming is your thing, just head over to your favorite, search Country Music Made Me and give us a follow there as well. On today's episode, we are excited to welcome singer, songwriter, artist, Adam Sanders. Now he found early success in Nashville after moving there when he was 21. He had number one hits with Cole Swindell and Dustin Lynch with Ain't Worth the Whiskey with Cole and Hell of a Night with Dustin pretty quickly when he arrived in Music City. But as an artist, it's been a bit of a longer journey and finding really who he is as an artist. 2018, 2019 were big years within that. And last year, he released his debut album, What If I'm Right? And this year, he's followed it up with his EP, I Wanna Be Somebody. He has big plans for the future, and really, it's been an incredible journey up to now, and we're excited about what comes next. So please enjoy our conversation with Adam Sanders. Let's start out with your early days in Florida. Now, I heard you talk about when people think of Florida, they think about the beaches and the sun and the city. But for you, it was really on the outskirts of Florida, within the farmland and with sort of the, within the wide open country. Yeah, you know, right in the middle of uh, the bar of Florida. Um, I describe it as is South Georgia, basically, is what it what it actually is. Um, but yeah, we had a lot of... Um, a lot of pines, um, a lot of, a lot of farmland, um, swampy areas and that sort of stuff. And so, um, yeah, just, you know, Florida, Florida is two different States to me for sure. And I, I'm from the, the rural part of Florida. So do you think that things would be different within your songwriting and within your life, if you would have grown up more in the Florida that people know? Oh, absolutely. I, um, I feel like I, I've always been a guy that tries to write about what I know and what I know is, you know, more of a rural lifestyle. Um, but yeah, you know, I think if I would have grown up maybe closer to the beaches and that sort of stuff, maybe I have a little more of a, a Jimmy Buffett, you know, kind of thing going on. But, uh, but no, man, that's, uh, you know, I, I got to go to the beach a little bit as, as a kid, but lakes and rivers and that sort of thing was sort of our thing, you know, for like for, for water. And, you know, Florida has some beautiful, um, you know, sort of intercoastal things. And so there was a, there was a, a river called the Itchtutney river. That's crystal clear. Um, that we used to go to a lot. It's the same water temperature year round. And so that was sort of our stuff. You know, the beaches weren't necessarily our thing. Awesome. And the people within your life, I wanted to talk about maybe some influential people, First, starting with your great grandpa, Evie, I saw that you mentioned his storytelling when he passed away, that you were going to miss his storytelling. And so talk about him and sort of how long you were able to know him and maybe how his storytelling has influenced you within being a songwriter. Well, first off, I'll say I'm amazed that uh, you dug that deep to, to even know Um my grandpa Evie was very special uh, to me. He was uh, my great grandfather on my my mother's side, and um, he lived to be 
Uh, he was two weeks before his 98th birthday when he passed away. Oh, wow. Um, nice. And so um, I got to, yeah, I was very fortunate that uh, as a kid, I got to grow up around both of my great grandparents. Um, my great grandmother, uh, his wife is actually still alive. Um, she is uh, over a hundred years old now and oh, just wow. as healthy as can be. And so he always had this, uh, this joke because he always, even in his eighties and nineties, you know, he, um, he had a family farm um, that he worked, uh, lived on 40 acres and had horses and um, was a farmer. He, uh, he did uh, cane grinding every year. I'm not sure if you're familiar with sugar cane. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So sugar cane is basically um, what you make syrup out of. And so he would, uh, he would every year um, plant cane. And then we would have this big family event where we would go and, um, and, and make, uh, syrup you know like maple syrup but this was cane syrup and so um but but it, we always joke we we're like how are you in such good shape and he said he said i'll tell you he said i uh i drank one sip of a beer and took one puff of a cigarette that's all i've ever done in my life you know as far as bad things and so um but yeah man he uh he was a guy you know i had so many uh things i remember um again he had a lot of lot of uh cattle and he thought that it would be funny to name a, uh, a cow that he got dot uh, com because they started selling cattle online. And, and so he named the cow dot com. And so uh, which was really cool. And uh, I remember I was a kid when um, when I was about 10 or 12, I loved any kind of like running or, you know, just kind of uh, cross country running. And I always was pretty fast and pretty good at it. And uh, he challenged me one day to a race back from church to his house, which was literally just probably 300 yards. He lived really close to uh, the church um, that he was a, a deacon at and man at 80 years old, he like smoked me, which was crazy, you know? And so, um, but yeah, man, I, I definitely miss my, my grandpa EV and uh, he was a, uh, he was one of a kind and very, very godly man. Uh, not, not, you know, they just, there's not many people that, that are like him and just as genuine and as kind and, you know, lives to be that, that old. And, you know, so I was very, very fortunate. Most people don't, don't get to spend time with their grandparents, let alone their great grandparents. And yeah. so that was pretty special. And your grandfather, your one of your more recent singles Good day to fly was written for him. Talk about him and the influence he had on this journey for you. Yeah. So my grandpa Sanders, uh, which is my dad's dad, um, man, he was, he was a guy that, literally taught me everything I know about, about music. Um, he was, um, a gospel singer back in, back in his day, um, in North Florida. And, um, I, I got a lot of my musical influences from him. Um, some of those photos you can see of me when I'm three or four years old and he's holding the microphone. And so, um, was, was a very straight laced guy also like my, my grandpa Evie, um, was very stern though. Unlike my grandpa Evie, my grandpa Evie was a little more laid back and, and caring. And my grandpa uh, Sanders was just like string straight, you know, like you did not even, even adults were like at attention, you know, around him. He was just right. sort of the, the, the lead guy in every, in every room that he, that he walked into and everyone always looked to him for answers. Um, but I owe it all to him for being in Nashville. Um, my uncle, um, which is his son, my dad's brother, um, moved to Nashville when he was 13 years old uh, to be in the music industry. He was a, a session musician. He was, he plays an instrument called the steel guitar. 
uh, in Dobro. And because he was so young, my grandparents had to move up with him. And so he moved um, up to Nashville with my uncle Scotty. And through the years, uh, some of my family started sort of following. And so he was who kind of created a home base for me here in Nashville. So when I moved um, and I graduated from high school, I already had my dad here and my grandparents, my uncles and that sort of stuff. And so um, it was, it was sort of him that just kind of led us all here. And so um, I knew I was always bit by the music bug at a very early age. Um, And I'm not, I'm not sure if I would have, if I would have moved to Nashville as soon as I did without having sort of a, a, a core fa- uh, base here in Nashville. Um, but he definitely, he definitely, you know, made that possible for me. That's amazing. And within your musical influence and being drawn to music at a young age, tell me about the Alan Jackson concert. I think you would have been about three. I saw the photo of your parents and you and your brother standing with Alan backstage Talk about that experience. Do you remember anything from it or are there stories that have carried down with you that your parents tell from that night? Yeah. You know, I I remember very little of it. Um, I remember being side stage um, at the concert. I still can visually see it. Um, The concert was in Gainesville, Florida, which was uh, about 40 minutes where I grew up. And Alan Jackson was my childhood hero. Um, And through the years as an adult, um, I'm really big into just like understanding why like certain things. And I really feel like um, it's because he looked a lot like a family member of mine. He looked like my uncle. And so I think as like a three-year-old or a two-year-old, you know, I just sort of saw him as a very familiar um, figure. And so I was just sort of drawn to him and the fact that he could sing and, and, and that sort of stuff. So that concert was my first concert. My uncle Scotty, who was in Nashville already, my, I think my dad called him and, and asked if he could somehow get t- uh, tickets for the show. Um, it was Randy Travis and Alan Jackson. Alan Jackson was opening for Randy Travis oh, okay. um, that night. And um, a guy by the name of Carson Chamberlain, who was Alan Jackson's um, tour manager at the time, uh, got us uh, tickets, got us backstage. My dad on the way. Uh, bought me my first guitar, which is a little red guitar that uh, I'm holding in the photo. Oh, okay, yeah, I was wondering um, when you got that one. Alan signed it and uh, signed it. Best wishes, uh, Alan Jackson. And um, it was just something that for me, man, was just like, you know, from day one, I knew that, you know, music, you know, music chose me. I didn't necessarily pick music, but those were things that really just sort of fueled me. And so for the next, you know, five or six years, I just, idolized Alan Jackson. I wanted to be him and everything that I did. I wanted to dress like him, um, you know, play the same kind of guitars, uh, even all the way up to when I moved to Nashville. Um, my PRO, who is um, who sort of keeps up with all of our royalties and that sort of stuff for songwriting and that sort of stuff. Right. Um, I went to ASCAP because through the years I would look at the booklets and, and I would see ASCAP next to Alan Jackson's name. And so for me, I was thinking, well, if it's, if it's good enough for Alan, it's good enough for me. <laughs> and so within the performing of music, when did that begin and performing around Florida and starting to get out there and sort of get your feet wet within being a musician? Literally, um, you know, as far back as three or four. Um, wow. I remember um, performing 
for family members just in my living room, you know, or whatever. And um, I performed at my my first daycare before I was kicked out, uh, which was funny. <laughs> Why uh, were you for, kicked out? For talking too much and singing too much when I would uh, try to, you know, they'd try to put us down for a nap and I was just a kid that wouldn't have it. So, right. um, but it, but that transitioned into even grade school um, performing at talent shows in school or performing for my classmates. Um, I just always love to sing and um, I love to make people feel something. I even remember um, if I would get in trouble, I was never a bad kid um, for doing anything like super bad, but I was definitely a kid that just loved to talk and sing and, and just kind of be center of attention. So if I ever got in any kind of trouble for talking too much or whatever, I'd go to the principal's office and the principal would make me feel like he was going to call my parents and he would say, Hey, if you sing me Chattahoochee, I'll let you go back to class. And so I would just immediately start, start singing. And my, my teachers would, would actually pay me money, uh, pay me two or $3, um, to sing, which was crazy. Wow. Um, and so all of that literally was a part of my life all the way up through high school. And then I started, uh, you know, through middle school, I started entering contests that was local contest that was, um, put on by the radio stations and, was very fortunate. We had two radio stations in uh, North Florida where I was from. They both had sort of the same contest and the, uh, the winning prize was a thousand dollars. And I ended up winning both of them through the years. And I sort of invested that money back into music equipment so I could um, travel and kind of start doing my own shows. Um, and I could have a way to practice um, at my house. I remember um, always buying karaoke tracks and singing the karaoke tracks um and so yeah it was always a part of my life literally all the way back as far as i can remember and the songwriting began at the age of 12 um when your uncle scotty phoned you and said if you want to do this then do it and start writing and so within that experience when you began songwriting what did it make you feel inside was it a pretty special feeling right off the beginning when you began writing Well, it's amazing how God works and just like the fate of it all, you know, because of that conversation, um, you know, he was planting seeds in me at such a, at a young age. And I think he saw how, how much I wanted to be in the music industry. And he, that was his way of saying, Hey, you know, this could be your way in the music industry one day, which fast forward, it actually was my way into the music industry. But I think songwriting for me, um, even still today, as an adult, uh, was, was therapy. Um, I could write about personal things, um, heartbreak or loss or, um, you know, uh, new love or whatever it may be. Um, I could, I was, I was good at verbalizing it through songs and that was sort of, it was counseling for myself in a sense. And so, um, I've, I've sort of said through the years, I'm learning that, I am my biggest fan. Um, and it's because I think I write stuff that, um, I want to hear, um, so much that when I listen back, it's almost like I'm somehow consciously counseling myself and, and I get so much out of it. Um, you know, I'm a guy that will write a song, record it, drive, uh, on a trip by myself, um, somewhere and literally, uh, put the song on repeat for three or four hours and just sing the song over and over with no one else in the car. It's just because I genuinely love to do it. And so I think songwriting was, was something that, um, that I needed and I didn't know that I needed 
Um, and it turned out to be that I was, um, had a knack for it, really enjoyed the process of it. And just the feelings that when I started experiencing co-writing, when I moved to Nashville and started to meet, um, guys that had moved to Nashville to do the same thing as me. Um, I just remember it was like a drug, man. It was just like such a high and so, so fun. It still is today. Um, even, you know, 11 years into it, um, you know, still get those feelings, uh, like I did, you know, way back when. And so when you first moved to Nashville after high school, you're very involved on the performing side, but you're getting more involved in the songwriting side as well. And it seems like both were sort of fulfilling something within you. And so when you first moved to Nashville, where was your mindset? Were you focused on, I'm going to be a writer first and then transition to an artist, or I want to be an artist. And then you sort of fell into songwriting or where was the mindset of what you personally wanted to do when you first moved to Nashville? Well, my goals, my, my ultimate goal was to always be an artist. And, you know, unlike a lot of people uh, that are in music today, I feel like a lot of people find um, this as a career path later in life, whether it's in college, you know, there's, they sort of say, man, I never, I never thought that I would be in, in country music or whatever. Yeah. For me, it was just, you know, a one from day one. And so my dreams and aspirations was always to, be all the way to the top of the mountain, be, be my generation's Alan Jackson, you know, or George Strait. And so when I moved to Nashville, um, I moved in with my dad. I started working in construction uh, with him and I really just kind of sat back and I was like, man, I just really kind of strategically looked at how was the best way for me to start climbing the mountain. Um, and I looked at one route as man, I could try to go, get on the voice and hope Blake Shelton turns his chair around Um, or uh, I really like songwriting and I could try to use that uh, as an avenue. I have seen that model sort of, sort of work for other artists um, as far as writing songs for other people and then sort of come into the artist that sings those songs yourself. And so that was the the route that I took. Um, And I'd been in Nashville for about two years, just writing songs trying to hone my craft. Um, and I met a guy by the name of Ryan Basel who worked at ASCAP at the time, who was my rep that I didn't even necessarily know. Um, Ryan heard some of my songs, helped me shop them around to get a publishing deal. Um, and so my first publishing deal was uh, after about two years of being in Nashville. And man, it was just crazy how fast out of the gate things started happening. Six months into my first deal, I got my first cut, um, which was uh, a song called Out Like That on Luke Bryan's Crash My Party album. Right. And from there, man, it just kind of exploded from there. And so that was a way for me to sort of say, eventually, maybe if I could keep writing these songs for other people, maybe someone would look up and say, well, this guy's writing them and he can sing. Um, Maybe he should be the one recording them. And so that was sort of the philosophy behind it. Right. And now talk about Cole Swindell and your relationship with him. And what that's meant for this journey, because that was your second number one. Was he, he was first and then Dustin was second. So yeah, just talk about that relationship and what it has meant, not only as a songwriter, but also moving into the artist career. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think, um, I don't want to speak for him, but um, when we first started hanging out, 
I don't think either one of us knew how much of an impact we would have on each other's lives. Um, I'll never forget, uh, this is back in the MySpace days, I uh, ran across a guy by the name of Josh Martin. Uh, Josh and I got together to co-write, and he was the first person that introduced me to Cole. And he said, man, I got this guy that's a friend of mine. Um, I feel like you guys would just get along really well. We should all hang out together. And it turned out to be Cole. And we started co-writing and watching sports together and just kind of hanging out on the weekends. Um, and a lot of our success that we shared together in the songwriting world was in such of our, in, you know, in our early days of Nashville, he had just signed a publishing deal. I, I hadn't signed a publishing deal yet. Um, and, you know, because he became an artist that was an avenue for a song that we had wrote together, which was Ain't Worth a Whiskey. Um, you know, we wrote it way back. I think it was six years before the song was ever recorded, which oh, ended wow. up being by him. And so, yeah, it was my first number one. It was his third consecutive. Um, I still think today uh, he would tell you that's his biggest uh, song live. Um, you know, even after, what is he up to four albums now? You know, and so, yeah. um, so it's very special. And, and Cole's a guy that, man, um, there was a lot of days for me that, you know, I had all this songwriting success going on. Uh, and I couldn't figure out why it wasn't transitioning to a, a label deal. Right. Um, and there was a lot of frustrating days uh, back in those early days. And he was a guy that always told me, he was like, man, he was like, you're better than 95% of these guys, you know, just keep doing your thing and keep running your race. And he's like, I promise you it's going to happen. And so he's a guy that's always believed um, and given me opportunities to, to, tour he's walked into record labels big major labels um stuck his neck out and was like y'all are idiots if you don't sign this guy i mean he's literally done that uh for me and uh and as a guy that um i still think continues to believe i don't think we, we don't get to really see each other as much as we used to um but literally i can i can see him tomorrow and it's like we never you know spend a day apart right and so you get that number one then you get your second number one with hell of a night by Dustin Lynch. And then you decide to try and step out and you release your first single, Nothing to Do But Drink. Now, this is a song, it's been on my playlist ever since it came out. Like I've known you ever since then because of that song, but it didn't necessarily do what you wanted it to do for your artist career. So when you look back on it, talk about that moment. And were you ready as an artist? when you released that song? Absolutely not. Uh, you know, that song was very big for me um, in the Sears XM uh, highway days. Uh, that was my first single and we found a way to get the song on, on XM. I think it went all the way to top five on their chart uh, on their, on their countdown. So that was amazing. Um, but man, I think for me, um, I moved to Nashville when I was 21 years old. At 24, I have two number ones. I've got another song by Michael Ray that's flying up the charts called Real Men Love Jesus that ended up dying at 15. So I almost actually had three number ones in a calendar year at 24, which was, you know, crazy to think about. Yeah. So as we transition uh, to me recording songs, Nothing to Do But Drink was a song that was 
I feel like 100% authentically who I was. But the problem was, is I did not have an image or a brand to match the song. Right. Um, you know, if you look back at, you know, the photo, I look like a redneck Justin Bieber for one. And here I am singing about drinking and I look so young, you know, it just like, there's just not a lot of correlation, you know, with it. And so, right. um, and I think I found over the next, you know, couple of years, I was releasing songs that were good songs because I knew what a good song was through writing hit songs, but I was yet to figure out what a good song was for me. Right. And so, um, I feel like after just sort of just trying things and chasing the market, it, so to speak, you know, whatever was the sort of hot new sound that was sort of like things that I was uh, kind of releasing. Um, I found that, you know, I needed to start really focusing on me and my brand. Uh, that was more important than the actual songs uh, and start there. Um, but nothing to do but drink was definitely a song that opened a lot of doors for me. Um and, uh, yeah, I always kind of say, I was like, man, um, I would have given anything if someone would have took that song and they would have said, Hey, we're going to keep you under wraps for two and a half years. And we're going to, we're going to work on you and grow you as a man. And, you know, from a kid and, uh, get you in the gym and put a little weight on you and, and get your hair right and, 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 and get, you know, things that are authentic to you. Um, that will fit this song and then let's come with it, you know, but that didn't necessarily happen. Um, but like I said, I still think that song, you know, really ex exceeded expectations. If you think about it, being an independent artist, and I think we sold 80,000 copies of that single back when you could sell singles. Uh, right. Like I said it went top five uh, on XM, the highway. Um, it opened a lot of doors for me. And so it was definitely one that uh, it's crazy. That song still, after all these years, uh, still sticks around uh, for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And so through the next few years, as you begin touring, as you begin releasing more singles, were you still focused on, I want to be an artist? Or were there a lot of times where it was like, writing is going so well, why don't I just stick with that? Why don't I just do that and not worry about trying to push this, this artist career forward? No, I was definitely... Um... At that point, I kind of feel like I was, you know, I was so hungry and eager to make my artist dreams come true that I actually thought that the way the way that how fast my songwriting career started to work. And don't get me wrong, it was a lot of a lot of years of hard work. Um, but songwriting came the successes came relatively early for me uh, in my days in Nashville. Right. I just sort of thought, hey my artist career is going to sort of do the same thing. And I, and I felt very confident in it because I was like, man, I've put in the time and the work and this is what is supposed to happen. But um, I think I found myself in a situation where I'm still really focused on uh, being an artist. Um, I didn't have a lot of direction, but I didn't necessarily know I didn't have a lot of direction in those days. It was more of, I thought I knew what was, what was, needing to be done in that world but on the co-writing side of things um i think i was just in a spot where we were just trying to write good songs and if it if it was something that i recorded um or something that other artists recorded great you know i knew that it would all eventually lead back to um 
you know, fueling the fire, you know, per se, regardless of it, something I recorded or someone else. And so I was just trying to, you know, write and record, you know, the best songs I could write. Right. And so coming into 2020, you had released your EP in 2018, I believe it was your debut EP. And so coming into 2020, did you yet know who you were as an artist, even after the release of that EP, did you find? So I feel like somewhere around uh, 2019 was when I really started to connect the dots. And um, I really treated 2018, 2019 as, as a chess game. Per se, and if you go back and you and you look at uh, what I'm about to, to say here, it, it may make a lot of sense. So we had a lot of success with the EP. At that point, uh, I was in a spot in my career where I'd only released one or two songs a year, and I was begging to release more music by um, my management and my publisher at the time. And I'm like, please, we have to we have to give music to the fans. Um, and how we did that was we actually just took a lot of demos that uh, I had recorded um, that wasn't, you know, pitched or wasn't picked up by other artists. And we accumulated that EP from that. So oh, okay. we still didn't really go in and, and sort of have like uh, a producer and a certain sound. It was just like, hey, here's a batch of songs. Um, and we had a couple of them that did really well. Um, I My publishing deal had ran its course. I decided to uh, make a change from management booking agent and just kind of start over clean. Um, because I started to feel like naturally where I wanted to go and trusting my gut more was, uh, maybe not where, uh, they were sort of seeing things. And so I was like, man, let's just, you know, sort of tear it all back down to the foundation, uh, and kind of build the house back up again. And so, um, at 2018 and 2019, I was completely independent. I didn't have a manager, booking agent, publisher, any of that sort of stuff. Um, so what I started to do was I started to sort of strategically putting out songs to test the market. So I kind of put out um, a song called We Live It. That's a little, that's a, like an anthem um, for people. And then I had a song called um, um, We Had Miss Me Memphis and we had a, you know, a few others, Life I'm Living. And they were all just kind of different things um but i wanted to see the reactions from fans as they individually stood on their own right um, and i kind of started to think okay I, I realized i started to see a pattern what started to really work for me and translate for me um and so once we sort of went through that process i looked back at all of my analytics and at that point i had built up over a hundred you know that a hundred million streams as an independent artist. And I'm like, okay, clearly there's something here. Yeah, definitely. If, if fans are listening to it and it's still been an independent thing, but I feel like I can really get this thing really tight, you know, tighter now. And so uh, I sold my publishing um, to songs I had written, you know, for other artists of the years to fund my debut album. And that was the first time, uh, in 10 years of being in Nashville that I felt like I had a cohesive sound. I had one producer on the whole project. We did it exactly how I wanted to, to do it and, and say it. Um, 
and it was crazy what that album did. Um, you know, it started to really open the floodgates for me. And how exciting was that to be able to release a full album? Like you had 13 songs on an album. Like no one does that anymore, really. It's crazy how little there are albums that are past like five or six songs. And so how exciting was that for you to put together this cohesive package of 13 songs? And I believe there was only Make Him Want to Change was the only single from sort of between 2018 and 2020 that you put on the album. So you weren't necessarily pulling from that old material. And so how exciting was that to have that project? Well, it was, I mean, honestly, it was a dream come true. You know, like when I, when I feel like when you move to Nashville, that's sort of, you know, bucket list stuff of like, you know, right next to getting a record deal, it's, you know, releasing a full album and, and, it was crazy. I just had never had those uh, opportunities to do so. And so, um, so yeah, it was awesome to be, and, and I had written eight years worth of songs to that point. So I had hundreds of songs laying around. And so I, once I kind of felt like I really figured out what my thing was, I started to just sort of cherry pick from, from all those songs, whether it was something that I had just written, um, two weeks prior to recording the album or, you know, stuff that was all the way back, you know, written back in 2015. Um, and so that's sort of how we assembled that project. And so how freeing was that to finally be in a space where you're looking at eight years worth of songs and finally being in a space where you know what songs you want, you know what your sound is. You're not just picking what you think might be a radio hit or what you think others might like. You're picking songs that fit within who you are as an artist, really for the first time, it sounds like in your career. Yeah. You know, I've, I've heard a, a saying um, that says there's, there's a, there's a huge difference in when you think, you know, and you know, you know, and that was the first time that I knew that I knew like sort of what, what I was, meant to sort of sound like and sing and what fans wanted me to be. Um, you know, I like all types of music and some of those songs prior that came out uh, for me that for me was my sort of bread and butter and what I was hoping that would translate didn't necessarily translate that well. Um, and so it was definitely freeing, but it was also uh, it's, it's without a doubt the hardest thing that I've ever accomplished in my life because it was 100% self-funded um, with my own personal money. I basically took my quote unquote retirement and just sort of bet the farm on the whole thing um, and said a lot of prayers. Uh, all of the decisions from artwork to, uh, you know, track sequence, all that stuff was all on me. It was like me, you know, handling all of that. Um, and as I assembled my team through PR and digital marketing and, and all that kind of stuff, um, I was making a lot of executive calls. And so, um, like I said, it's, it's amazing to have the freedom to be able to do those things. But again, um, there's a lot riding on it. Also, when you get it wrong, you don't have anybody to blame, but yourself, you know? Yeah. And so, um, so it's, uh, it's definitely challenging, but, uh, but it's something that, um, that I sort of relish in. I love it. Right. And coming into 2022, you have the new EP, I Want to Be Somebody. Now, how important was it for you after all these years of sort of releasing a couple of singles per year and then 
finally your EP in 2018, and then a couple of years go by and you have the full album. How important was it for you to jump right back in after that album and continue to create and not just sit on that album for a couple of years and see how it does? Yeah, I've always uh, been a guy that feels like the more music I have out, the healthier my career is. And, um, you know, the proof was in the pudding for me for, for that album project. We had 40 million streams in a matter of like eight months um, from that album project. Um, and so I knew that I wanted to release the most music this year that I had ever released prior. And so my thought process was I wanted to get into a, a, a sequence of uh, trying to release six songs every quarter. And so um, that project, the I Want to Be Somebody EP, was the first um, of those six. Um, we've got another batch of six songs that are going to be coming very soon um, that we're going to start releasing out. I've also been working on two side projects that I'm really excited about. One is a 90s country cover EP, oh, um, nice. which is six songs of my favorite 90s country songs that I went back and recorded, uh, which tie all the way back to, if you remember me bringing a, a, a name up by the name of Carson Chamberlain, who was Alan Jackson's um, tour manager right, at yeah. the time. Uh, Carson Chamberlain through the years ends up being a producer, produced... Um, Billy Currington, um, Easton Corbin, you know, a lot of guys that, you know, I sort of uh, loved their music in the in the 2000 era when I started to kind of move to Nashville. Right. He actually produced this project, which was sort of a full you know, oh, sort wow. of a moment for me. And so um, so we got that. And then we're also working on a praise and worship project also um, that uh, that I've been wanting to do for a few years. So it's uh, it's so freeing to just do stuff that I want to do and what is authentic to me and not really worrying about um, sort of people's, you know, saying it'll work or it doesn't work. It's it, to me, it's not about that. I just think. I think if I've learned anything, fans gravitate towards authenticity um, and I'm having the most fun that I've ever had recording music that I want to record. And if it's outside of the box, you know, who cares? I think that fans will gravitate towards it because I know personally, you know, there's a lot of people out there that still loves all of those 90s songs. Um, and when they hear some of these, these songs, I, I feel like it's going to be a blast from the past. And I think that it could be just as successful as any new music that I put out. And how does it feel from when you moved to Nashville back in 2009 at the age of 21 and now to this point and still being sort of considered a rookie within the artist game because you are sort of just breaking through even though you've put so much work into it how odd is that for you within that transition and still being considered a, a new artist um man i think the biggest you know one word I, I could say is confidence i really feel that 33 year old adam versus 23 year old adam is worlds of difference um I've always had the drive and the ambition um, to do what I'm doing now. And I think that if it, you know, back then, if they would have said, Hey, Adam, dig, dig this ditch um, for a hundred miles long, I would have done it, you know, it sort of thing. I just had that much uh, drive, but I think uh, maturity and being confident in myself and who I am and 
and leaning on the things that make me me. And some of those days in the early days, I feel like I may have ran from what makes me different than everyone else. I wanted to be other people um, and not be authentically myself. And so I think now, man, it's just, it's just crazy how God works things out and just sort of mentally puts you in, in, in the places you need to be. And, um, you know, I've kind of done all those uh, things in the early days where, you know, it was very uh, beneficial for me to go to bars and network and meet people. And um, those days are kind of behind me now. Um, you know, I spend so much time working that I'm not a guy that goes out a lot. I love the outdoors and love to be in the gym and, and you know, trying to stay focused and, and on my craft. And so I just have a lot of confidence. I, I feel that um, if things, if the next year or so goes the way that, that I'm hoping, um, Lord willing, that, man, I'm in such a good spot to do do things that may have never been done in country music. And so it makes it so much sweeter when I look back on those days of like, you know, couldn't necessarily go to sleep at night. Cause I was thinking, how can I not have a record deal? And, and I think that maybe my path uh, all along was, was meant for me to not have one, um, you know, all through all those years. And, and who's to say that in the next year or two uh, that I won't, you know, sign a record deal that is probably way more in favor than it would have been, uh, in those early years because of what I've been able to build. Um, or if that's not the path for me, man, I'm, I'm, I'm becoming a guy that is doing things um, that I don't think we've ever seen in country music um, an independent scale that is in a quote unquote top 40 country radio sound. Right. Um, yeah. So, man, I'm, uh, I'm excited and uh, just, just very fortunate to be where I am. And one of the things that I think you're doing that's different is on I don't know if it's for the last album or this EP or an upcoming EP. I saw an article that talked about you setting aside 10% of net streaming revenue for your co-writers. Now talk about what that means. Yeah. So I being a songwriter at heart um, was very fortunate to um, be financially compensated through my work, through songs that made it to country radio. Um, and I still feel that, you know, writers can financially make a pretty decent living um, through songs that's on the radio. But being an artist up to this point who has not been able to be a guy that's on country radio um, and living more in the streaming world, um, I wanted to find a way that that songwriters could still be financially compensated through just digital streaming because, the the difference is is so is so mind blowing. Um, it literally would take hundreds of thousands of streams to equal, you know, five hundred bucks, which was you know wow. crazy. So it's almost it's it's almost impossible. And so being an independent artist and owning um, my masters um, because I am my own label, uh, I can allocate you know a certain percentage to my songwriters um and so that's uh, that's something that i want to do and and uh, be a voice for songwriters and really just try to find a way to be um you know i don't really want to be a guy that is on one side of the fence or the other as far as um standing with songwriters and sort of saying to the apple music and spotify's of the world Hey, we hate your guts for what you're doing, but I also, you know, don't want to stand on the other side of the fence and, and, and alienate songwriters 
I want to be a guy that can figure out a way to bridge the gap and understand like, Hey, I don't, I don't necessarily know all the, the answers to, to the, to the questions and how to fix it. But I know that this is how I can uh, be a guy that can help start the conversations and bridge the gaps until we can figure it out and understanding that we're all in this together uh, and we don't have to be so divided. Right. That's amazing. And one last thing I want to ask, we've talked about this journey and sort of the ups and downs within it. But when you look back on being three years old, seeing an Alan Jackson concert, getting your first guitar, being bitten by music at such a young age, when you look back to that three-year-old kid standing beside Alan Jackson and you look at yourself now, what do you think of the journey? Man, um, <laughs> you'll make me tear up. Uh, I think he would be proud um, for for never giving up. I, for whatever reason, and maybe this is just this was God speaking to me so young. Man, you know, I've never been in life um, the best singer. I've never been the best guitar player, the best writer. I've never really been anointed as like the guy. You know, there's there's certain artists that I feel like in Nashville that, you know, just get those opportunities. And for me, it was never that. Um, it was always through hard work and grit. And even back in my early ages of when I would go to school and I would sing for my teachers, I don't think they necessarily looked at me as like, oh my God, this guy's, you know, such a good singer. They just saw the how much I loved it. And they always told me, um, even fans still today, drill into my head never give up on your dreams and and never stop and there's a lot of days that, that I wanted to but I'm almost so programmed to not know how to stop you know sort of thing and and until I do reach it you know one day and so um I think just you know all that I've been through yes I've had successes um but I've also had a very big um vision and dream you know it's it wasn't just move to Nashville and record music. It's move to Nashville, um, be the biggest act in country music that we've ever seen in our format. And so um, when you, when you've got a canvas that big to paint on, you need a lot of paint. And so, um, so I would say that, you know, it's not one that if you would have set me down at three years old and laid out and said, Hey, Adam, this is what you're going to have to go through to get where you want to go. Probably would have scared me and I probably wouldn't have done it. Um, but I think it's kind of one of those things where if you're running the marathon, you're not worried about the end of the, you know, the finish line. You're just worried about one, one step at a time. And now I look at it like, man, I'm, I'm so far into this. Why stop now? You know, like, it's like, it's, you know, it's, uh, I'm a lot further than I was, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago or, or, or just even last year. Um, and so it's kind of looking at it of like, man, just keep running your race and, and, uh, keep doing the right things and, and things will all work out. Thank you so much once again for listening and thank you to Adam for stopping by and sharing his story. Be sure to check out his album, What If I'm Right, and his new EP, I Want to Be Somebody, wherever you stream your music. Please also be sure to check out our website at countrymusicmademe.com. There you can listen to all of our episodes and also sign up for our newsletter to receive exclusive content and also stay up to date on all of our upcoming guests. 
just head over to countrymusicmademe.com and hit that subscribe button. You can also find us on any streaming platform. So if streaming is your thing, just head over to your favorite, search Country Music Made Me and give us a follow there as well. Thank you once again so much for listening and we'll see you next time on Country Music Made Me. Music